yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast today. I'm still hanging around Boston, having a great time, and I'm now at MIT, once again, talking with Assistant Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at MIT, Evelina Federinko is joining me today. Evelina, thank Hello. you so much. Um, we're we're going to be talking about language today. It's one of my, it's a fascinating topic, and uh, it, it's, it's something that I wish I was good with. I feel like I, I feel like I can understand um, the the things that we're going to be talking about today better than I can articulate them. I wish I could use language yeah. as well as I understand it. Um, Comprehension it, is always ahead of production. Yeah? <laughs> That's, is, yep. is that true? Yeah, yeah. Kids learn to understand before they oh, learn to speak. Right, and foreign foreigners can understand a lot more than they can say typically. Ah, so that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of where I want to start with you exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I was wondering if maybe it's been a while since we've done a language episode, and um, and and everyone has a different take too. But but just for maybe some of the listeners that haven't heard every single episode of the Here We Are podcast, mm-hmm. could you maybe set up just a little bit of the history of language studies for us and then maybe it, you can m- make it as yeah. short as I, I know that's a lot and it could probably take a whole hour yeah. but it, you can use as much time as you like and, and maybe lead into um, how you got into studying research and what sure. you do. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so the history of um, language research, um, that's a big, that's a long journey. People have found <laughs> language interesting for centuries um and um uh the kind of serious rigorous investigations of uh language in the mind and brain um have been going on i would say for um um at least a couple centuries um there is a few major figures that have um played a big role in kind of moving the field uh, forward in various ways. Noam Chomsky, who was here at MIT for many years, was one of them. Um, in the uh, realm of neuroscience, language was actually the first domain that kind of spurred the whole enterprise of trying to understand how our mental capacities are implemented in neural tissue with the uh, uh, discovery that uh, brain function, um, language function is lateralized in the brain to the left hemisphere. Mm. Um, and that was originally discovered by um, uh, a neur- neurologist doctor called, um, uh, with the last name Dex, but he was one of these people who kind of got lost in history, and most of the credit for the discovery goes to Paul Broca, um, who um, had the Broca's a... Broca's area. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Ah, so he just stole that whole... Re- this is some kind fun of, little yes. bit of history. <laughs> then yeah. named it after himself. Yep. Son yep. of a gun. 
<laughs> that happens in science a lot. Um, still, really? You yeah. gotta, you going to call out anyone else for us? Um, <laughs> well, that? I mean, <laughs> the discovery of um, uh, DNA was uh, uh, a joint discovery among several people, and uh, people who got credit for it were uh, the men working on it and yeah. the woman, Rosalind Franklin, who was um, uh, a core uh, scientist did not get much credit. So things like that happen. Sometimes it's sexist. Sometimes it's um, in favor of more uh, dominant personality scientists over more soft-spoken and uh, quieter kinds. It's so like the, that third astronaut on, on the moon that's that right. no one knows. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. So, uh, But often, I mean, <laughs> in science, it's... Um, it, it does attract strong personalities, but there's also many, many scientists who are soft-spoken, uh, kind of introverted people. And then um, it's, you know, it's, it's a fine balance uh, between uh, being able to um, uh, uh, do the science, but also communicate your science and right. defend your science and be able to connect with the broader society and educate people about what you've discovered. Uh, uh, slight tangent. Mm -hmm. um, just because I, I think people might be curious about this. I was I was having mm. this conversation with um with with some uh civilians mm. recently who did, who didn't uh, know this aspect of academia, but there is yeah. actually a fair amount of pressure on you guys to do some public communication. Absolutely. It makes my job a lot yeah. easier yeah. because sometimes I've reached out to people and they're like, great, I can put this on my CV. I yeah. need to write things for grants and stuff yeah. like that. I need to be doing X amount of... Is is that That's pretty right. standard practice within academia these days? Yeah, uh, it is. I mean, if it's not in some places, it should be. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily care about putting something on my CV, I just feel the obligation because a lot of our research is funded by the taxpayers' money. And mm -hmm. a lot of the work we do, we hope that it will at some point um, help um, uh, advance not only kind of the core scientific enterprise, but also have applications in medicine and engineering to improve society. And so I'm always happy to try to tell people um, about work we do. Uh, most of it is basic research. So um, uh, at least in the domains um, of cognition that have to do with higher level mental functions like language, uh, we're quite far behind domains like vision, uh, which, for example, can be studied in other animals, including um, the use of animal models. Right. And so I would say that we're not quite at the point where our findings can be directly translated to help, for example, people with developmental and acquired disorders. Mm. Um, but, you know, I bet over the next a uh, few decades, um, we'll get closer to that. And I certainly keep that in mind as a um, motivation behind some of what we do. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, it seems it seems fair enough to ask a language researcher to communicate with the public. Yes. But what, what, about, what about the poor uh, robotics engineer that doesn't want to talk to anybody and just yeah. wants to... And just it's wants hard. to build his uh, his death robot or whatever, uh, or or love yeah. robot. We, yeah, we don't, yeah, whatever yeah, they're yeah. making over there. It's hard. People have people <laughs> have a harder and easier time talking uh, about their science with other people. Um, I feel like I've 
gotten better over the years. It's it's a non-trivial skill, but I think yeah. um, when you have to explain something to smart people outside your field or just thinking people outside your field, mm-hmm. um, it really makes you a better scientist because you should be able to explain your science to really anybody willing to understand. Um, and the ability to strip away all the relevant jargon and talk kind of distill the key messages from your findings, I think that's a pretty key uh, uh, skill to have as a scientist. So one, uh, I, I don't want to delay getting into your specific work, but I, I do, um, I was wondering if you could give people just a little rundown on some of the, the hemisphere research, just because people that haven't heard it before are going to get a big kick out of it. And sure. it's it's one of those things you first hear. So so I I know it as the Broca's area, but what what should we rename it to for this podcast? <laughs> what was the guy's name again? That uh, got scooped? Dax is the last name. All right, the um, Dax area. Yeah. Uh, well, so um, there is. Um, there are asymmetries in our brains. There are asymmetries in the brains of all species, as best we know, um, that have a nervous system. Um, like even in the smallest um, uh, inchworms, uh, you find a bias to turn to the right or left, which is driven by differences uh, in the um, uh, in the brain, in the simple brain that they have. So. Um, in the simple nervous system that they have, I should say. Um, so in humans, there are um, some functions that tend to be more strongly present in the left hemisphere and some functions that, sh- that are more strongly present in the right hemisphere. It tends to be very consistent um, across individuals. So for example, um, language um, is more strongly present in the left hemisphere um, of um maybe like 97% of people or so. Um, It doesn't track with handedness. So one of the misconceptions out there is that people who have atypical handedness, so people who are left-handed, will have language in their right hemisphere, and that's not true. Mm. Um, They are a little bit more likely to have atypical lateralization, but it's just a small bias, a small shift in that direction. Um, Most people still have, most left-handers still have language more dominant in the left hemisphere. Um, Some functions are quite evenly distributed across hemispheres, so some aspects of perception and motor function are quite evenly distributed. Uh, Some aspects of social cognition are more strongly lateralized to the right, so face perception and higher level mentalizing function, so thinking about what other people think, uh, tends to be right lateralized. Um, The nature of these differences and um, uh, the origins um, are debated. We do know that um, there is something important about these functions being lateralized as opposed to fully um, evenly distributed, Mm. because um, in any developmental disorder that people have studied, uh, you find more bilateral responses in those functions to those functions that tend to be lateralized in um, typical people. Sorry, can you repeat that last line in people that are... So people who have developmental disorders, so like schizophrenia, um, dyslexia, um, epilepsy. So it it doesn't even have to be stuff that deals with language, for example. Hmm. So you take uh, individuals who suffered from epilepsy or people who suffer um, from schizophrenia, which is not typically considered a language disorder, um, and you look at how their brains respond during language processing, and it tends to be more bilateral, meaning both have hemispheres mm. respond similarly strongly uh, mm. compared to 
typical people where left hemisphere is much more active. Um, that is interesting. So that is interesting. So that suggests that something goes not quite right in brain development um, when you have a bi- risk factors for developing a um, disorder of some kind uh, that leads to more bilateral representation of mental functions. That is so bizarre. When engineering... When we go about engineering things, yeah. we certainly really tend to favor symmetry. Maybe that's not, right. maybe not around the buildings around the MIT campus, but uh, but no, typically that's right. that's, uh, that's the case. And that's right. and uh, the things yeah. that we're attracted to that yeah. uh, we have, you know, usually our arms are the same. That's right. <laughs> the that's same right. length and everything yeah. else. Although there is actually biases in your body as well. I mean, people don't generally. There are some people who study this. It's not very well understood, but we are very asymmetric. Even even though it looks kind mm. of symmetrical, we often have a stronger hand. We have a stronger preferred leg that we would use to kick a ball. Uh, we have a stronger eye that would be dominant, like if we have to squint and see something far away. One of our oh, eyes will do better. Really? So there's all sorts of asymmetries that are just kind of go unnoticed, but in fact are uh-huh. quite present. Um, huh. But but I should I should emphasize that there is a lot of symmetry in the brain. I mean, it is a symmetrical um, yeah. structure, and. If, for example, you have, uh, I mean, I'll use language as an example because that's what we do. Um, If, for example, you have early severe Mm. damage to your left hemisphere as a child, which can happen um, in cases of, for example, uh, perinatal stroke. So it's a stroke that can happen either right before you go through the birth canal or as you're going through the birth canal or right after. So around the time of birth. And oftentimes um, these cases actually go um, un- notice because our brains are so flexible such yeah. that if we have an early event in our brain it will just reorganize and function perfectly fine if you're gonna um, have a stroke that's when you that's exactly have it right in life, that's right exactly in right canal. that's exactly right and uh, uh so individuals who have massive damage to their um left hemisphere early on will tend to have their um, language system um migrate to the right hemisphere homologous areas, so areas that are kind of parallel to their um, left hemisphere um, Mm -hmm. uh, areas where language would have been otherwise. So that suggests that to the extent that um, our brains can reorganize, they reorganize in a systematic fashion such that they use the symmetrical um, part in the other hemisphere too for that function. Well, yeah, because I I, I was wondering why in the world... uh, you said 97% of people languages dominant in the left hemisphere. That seems strange to me that there's what, what explains the 3% that aren't? Is it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, we, we don't know. We don't know as a field. I mean, one hmm. thing that um, we're trying to understand um, in our research is um, uh, whether there is something different about how individuals with atypical lateralization. So, who are not strongly left lateralized for language, whether there's something different about how they process language. Like, Mm. are they worse at language a little bit, right? If they're not using their dominant kind of preferred hemisphere. And you don't Um, know yet? We don't know yet. Mm. So um, there's challenges in asking these questions. To the extent that people have looked, they argue that, no, you don't find strong differences. But there are also no great assessments of language function that elicit... uh, 
variance in the typical population. So most good assessments we have that are well-normed, have a lot of normative data, come from either developmental um, language disorders or aphasia. So that's loss of language function in adulthood. So if you have a stroke when you're an older person, you will have language deficits. And so when you take these kinds of tests that exist and are well-normed and you administer them to standard typical college students, they're all performing at ceiling. So they all do really, really well, and then you don't get variance, right? So what you want is some language tasks where some people do a little bit worse and a little bit better. Um, and so one such thing that exists is SAT tests or GRE tests, uh, which are designed to elicit variance in the typical population. But those measures are very strongly correlated with general intelligence, as opposed to tapping specifically um, linguistic mm. abilities, which are quite separable from general intelligence. And so we've been trying to develop some tests to ask these questions, but it's tricky. Yeah, it seems yep. like even just the idea of saying this person's better with language than this person, it seems like a hard thing to quantify when yes. it, myself, for example, mm -hmm. I I have a terrible vocabulary. I, I didn't pay attention in school. Mm -hmm. I, I never had any ambition yep. to go to college. I wasn't a reader growing up. My yep. my family was uh didn't have didn't throw around a lot of big words. And, yep, yep. And um and, and so I it, but but I come up with good ideas on stage. Right. I phrase things yep. in ways yep. that, that people think are well articulated. Right. And I ask, okay, questions on this podcast, but I do it in this clunky way because I don't have the words to, to say <laughs> well, in an okay. articulate fashion. <laughs> and yeah. and so, I mean, I don't think of myself as good with language, but, but certainly there'd be people in my audience that would think so. And, and That's it just, part of the challenge. It's a very multifaceted ability. Mm -hmm. And indeed, um, there's many ways to construe what it means to be good at language. You can be really articulate. You can be able to find just the right wording, as you're pointing out sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, you can have a big vocabulary. You can be good at learning languages. So there are people who we studied um, a little bit in one of our projects um, um, known as hyperpolyglots. So these are people who have acquired uh, more than 10 languages. And so and we have people who have acquired 20 and 30 foreign languages and I mean, 40 foreign languages. stop it already. <laughs> Come on. It's, it I seems crazy. It, why do, <laughs> I don't know why people just, it, it, why do you want to make me feel that bad about myself <laughs> with my once in a while going on Duolingo uh, app to try Which to learn a couple Spanish words Spanish. here and there. That's useful. I, yeah. <laughs> I'd like Mandarin, I think yeah. I'd be more interested in, in but yeah. um, Spanish would be easier to that's learn, right, that's right. learn yeah, in being language. in the U.S. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah that's so so what in the world is going on there is that like are they like autistic savant type people no it's, it's it's a very it's a very interesting um population it's a very diverse population so my bias also would be to think that there are these kind of nerd people who um just sit and study from books which is kind of so i when i was a kid i studied um five or six languages or something. And I forgot them all because in the US, you really only need one. Uh, and in science, you only need one mostly. Uh, but um, when, um, um, uh, when, when I started interacting with this population, you notice that there's at least 
minimally two subpopulations, which includes the nerds that I mentioned, but also these people who go up and strike conversations with random people on these international markets, which to me sounds totally terrifying as, as an introverted person, but yeah. they, um, they often will um, learn from conversations without even sometimes having the language seen the language written at all and then ah. they pick up things very easily that way um and so i've um i've wanted to um uh try to maybe go deeper into this work and try to kind of cognitively characterize this population like what what makes a hyper polyglot are they generally smarter than the rest of us are they um do they have particular personality features do they have like for example um are they all socially uh on one extreme or another or something like that. And um, it just kind of fell off our radar a little bit because there's too many <laughs> things that we're doing already. Right. But um, we, we do have a finding which um, is still in the publication pipeline, but we do find that these individuals tend to have smaller language areas. So if you take a typical uh, individual mm. like yourself and me and um, you look at their brain areas there they have a certain distribution of sizes so of course they vary across people a little bit but if you then look um, at a very large sample of typical people like a few hundred uh, versus a set of hyperpolyglots we have which is on the order of a dozen or so to maybe 20 total um, their language areas tend to be systematically smaller Hmm. Now, what that means is not fully clear. We take it to, uh, we interpret this in terms of um, greater processing efficiency. So an analogy I can give you is from learning a new motor task. Like when you're trying to learn how to do something sophisticated with your hands um, and you look at neural activity as you're doing it, um, you have a big swath of activity in your motor and premotor cortex. But as you get better and better at a task, kind of becomes more automated, if you wish, the activations tend to shrink. Mm. So you don't need to use as much brain tissue to accomplish the same level of performance. And so that's one way we can think about these um, hyperpolyglots as basically not needing as much neural tissue to accomplish the same task, which is extracting meaning from linguistic mm. utterances. It's just effortless to pick up your 40th language. Yeah, well... It, <laughs> it, well, it, that, that's a... That would be an interesting finding to see um, a connection between um, uh, being extroverted and being more verbally yeah. fluent, or yeah. or and also, would you say that people that are um, uh, that speak multiple languages are they overall better within each language, or say, uh, say someone that speaks. Say there's there's someone their primary language is English, mm -hmm. and they speak four other languages. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the odds are that they're better at using English than the average English speaker that doesn't know other languages? Right. So so that's that is actually the comparison because to compare them to other people, we can only look at their native language, right? Because for other languages, you can't compare them to the right. rest of the population because they just don't have they don't speak those other languages. So that is exactly what we're finding is that for their native language, they seem to use less resources to process mm. that language. Um, and um, it's possible that one possibility that we can't rule out is that their language processing mechanisms were more efficient from the start. So as a kid, it was easier for them to pick up their first language. They just had a very efficient 
language learning mechanism, whatever that may mean. Um, and so later they started acquiring other languages because they found that pleasurable. Like a lot of them really mm. just enjoy it. Some of them say, no, it's not that. It's not particularly easy for me. I just like doing it and I spend a lot of time doing it and I get better at it. But some of them do say that, yeah, it seems like it comes easy to me. Mm. I, I see the connections between languages easier. I can like memorize words quickly. Um, I can repeat the exact sounds of another language, which a lot of people can't um, can't do. So, hmm. we, yeah. It, it, so even, even if you were able to connect that there's, say, a connection between extroverts and and uh, yeah. m- more in uh, uh, better language, mm-hmm. the arrow of causation might be that they were just better exactly. at language to start, and so, th- so they, they were just more comfortable exactly. talking. Whereas my whole life, yeah. I was like, uh, "Better not risk it." <laughs> I'm just going right. to stay here quietly. <laughs> yeah, I relate to that. Yeah, what horrible yeah. things will come out of my mouth? <laughs> Embarrassing. Um, I still, I, I have uh, uh, typos, like cra- just texting people. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, uh, if, my way of proofreading is I hit send first. <laughs> And then I and Good then direction. I read yeah. what I sent, and then go, yeah. oh wow. no, yeah. and put little asterisks in. And stuff. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So, are there it, you, when you hear about someone that's like um, blind from birth or early on in, yeah. in life, and then they're really good at music or yeah. good with words or whatever? Is that yeah? Um, similar to what we were talking about earlier where where different parts of the brain can get recruited for different functions um back to the stroke birth canal is there kind of similar things yeah, going that's, on that's a little bit different because if you're talking about for example congenital blindness i mean it's similar in a sense that things reorganize in the brain but it's for a different reason right so if you have a case of early brain damage you're basically now missing a whole hunk of your brain sometimes really big chunks like um one surgery that used to be done, which is no longer done, um, is called a hemispherectomy, where your whole hemisphere was removed. So this was typically Ooh. done. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, it sounds scary. But again, these kids grew up to be pretty much totally fine. And that was striking. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it just fills up with what? water. <laughs> It just fills up with water. Yeah, with cerebrospinal fluid. And it uh, turns out that one hemisphere pretty much enough to support cognition. Wow. Isn't that wild? Wh- that is exceptionally yeah. wild. What yeah. is... Um, boy, I feel... I, I, I hope they didn't do that to me and never tell me. <laughs> yeah, I think I you would I know. I bet I got like half a head of water right now. I feel that way sometimes. We can scan you. We can scan you and find <laughs> I, uh, out. But, um, um, yeah. What was the surgery for? Uh, epilepsy. So drug-resistant epilepsy. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's basically when... Yeah. Like... Go, going back how far when when did they cut that off um i think they stopped like in the 60s and 70s okay. maybe um but again it's um i mean the reason that they stopped is because it, it it turned out that you can do much less invasive surgeries and achieve similar outcomes it's not because there was something that was terribly wrong as a result of these surgeries because if again if you do them early enough it's okay but now so so this is a so this is a case where you're missing some hunk of your brain and then you're trying to reorganize around that hole effectively mm-hmm. to accomplish whatever you need to accomplish in life. Um, the cases you're mentioning are cases where you suddenly have a whole bunch of tissue, like in congenital blindness, your whole visual cortex is just not getting the input 
that it's there to get, right? It's just not, there's nothing coming in through the retina going back to the visual cortex. And so suddenly you have a whole bunch of extra brain that you could in principle do other things with. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that you do. In fact, um, uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Marina Bedney at um, Johns Hopkins, um, has spent the last 10, 15 years trying to understand how congenitally blind people use this um, cortex that's not used for vision to do other things, including language. So mm. it turns out that some parts of that cortex uh, assume linguistic function, which is quite striking, given that um, vision and language seem like they're quite different in some ways. But it turns out that we can use cortex that's designed to do very different things in its default state. It can assume this very different function, which is high-level language understanding. It's too bad that the rewiring takes so long because I wish I could just go like, I'm, I'm going to turn off my sense of smell for 10 minutes and be smarter during, <laughs> during you know, this podcast. It's actually, it's interesting that you say that because it's actually remarkably fast how remapping happens. And there is some work, this is not my area, but there's people who are working on plasticity where even wearing an eye patch for just... Um, you know, in the order of a few hours or something like that, will already show some changes in how your brain responds to visual environment. So there are certainly some kinds of plasticity that take that happen on a much longer time scale, but there's some remapping that can happen quite fast. So, you know, these uh, yeah. sensory deprivation chambers that are becoming quite popular, maybe there is something to them. <laughs> maybe <laughs> you gain some additional... Um, at least that's how people describe it is that they feel that they kind of have deeper thoughts when they kind of shut out all of the sensory yeah, input that we I've normally have. I've done them several You've times. You've done that? Huh? Oh, yeah. There you go. Many times. I'd like to try it out. Yeah, it's pretty Sounds great. Sounds appealing, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I recommend it. The the first, the first couple times I definitely tried too hard to be like, I'm going to meditate and yeah. walk myself through these steps yeah. and focus yeah, on my yeah, breath. Yeah. And, and then uh, o over time, I learned to just let just go. Just let go. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so well, it, it sounds fun. Pretty interesting. Yep. There can be, I don't get as many visuals or whatever as mm -hmm, some people. Mm -hmm. it, it just seems like stars or something like yeah. that. Or, or yeah. so, sometimes, um, sometimes it'll look like the, uh, what is it? Star Trek, the warp or maybe yeah, yeah. Star Wars, the warp, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, warp yeah, drive or yeah. whatever. It, it'll That's look cool. like that a little That's bit interesting yeah. yeah um but but i i usually come up with some like decent i i usually come out of one with like a pretty solid joke about something and That's some good. some solution to some business issue that yeah. i've been having so that's great yeah, 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 yeah they're expensive but if, yeah. you, if you come up with a solution to one of your problems exactly in life from <laughs> it's it, worth then, it um so um what Hold on a second. Mm -hmm. I had my next question was, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it was the going back to the DAX area. Uh, what wasn't that? Wasn't that discovered in the same kind of way of, of the um, uh, the the different hemispheres? What Wasn't there some surgery for epilepsy or something where they were no, so, disconnecting? So the so the way that this was discovered, so the DAX guy um, was just treating um, uh, war veterans for many years, and he was noticing that when bullet um, wounds affected the left hemisphere, people would be more likely to end up with language problems. Ah. So that was his observation. 
what Broca um, did is he um, worked with a couple of patients who seemed to have severe linguistic output problems. So um, the most famous patient that people always talk about is patient 10, because all he could say was 10, and he just said it over and over again. Um, <laughs> and he seemed to have totally fine comprehension. So you could ask him questions, and he could provide you with the information. He could solve math problems. He could kind of reason about the world, but he just couldn't output anything using language. Um, and at that time, of course, there wasn't a fancy machine where you could scan his brain and see what's going on. So you have to wait until the patient died. Um, and then... Um, when um, uh, and Paul Broca was a physician, uh, French physician, and so when he examined his brain postmortem, he found that there was basically a lesion uh, in the left frontal lobe, um, and then he had another patient wow. with similar features that also showed that um, kind of a pattern, and so then the um, uh, the claim was that there are some parts of left inferior frontal lobe that support articulation, basically speech output. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it seems like he did some decent work there. It's oh, too yeah. bad he should have just done, he should have called it the Dax Broca area. Something like Everyone that, Everyone yes. would have been happy. That's right. <laughs> um, or, or maybe just come up with a different name altogether. Exactly. Um, I, boy, you know, I hate, I hate to uh, um, make light of people with some brain damage from a war but i would have liked to have had a conversation with patient 10 yeah <laughs> that would have been because i bet you could have understood you much learned, of what he was that's right that's right you learn a lot from talking and working with patients i mean that's um, the whole area of neuropsychology involves characterizing the kinds of deficits you can have as a result of either um, developmental conditions or acquired disorders due to for example stroke or neurodegeneration and we as a field have learned a ton about how language and cognition work from these cases because sometimes you find very interesting dissociations. Sometimes you find that um, things that you thought were um, supported by the same kind of capacity are actually really not. And uh, it's been, um, it's been, it's and it's always to any student or any trainee. I always recommend um, to at least have one line of work where they work with patient data because I think you learn a hell of a lot more than just working with um, typical individuals. Hmm. Yeah. Um. So, geez, I want to ask you specifically about your work, but I keep on having all these <laughs> questions <fine>. come <laughs> up. Um, well, one, one is um, synesthesia, uh, where it seems like there's just so much crosstalk between senses, but how, uh, how does that influence language? And I, I know there's a, um, like one of my favorite subjects is kind of embodied cognition, uh -huh. where people are using these kind of physical metaphors to make sense of these abstract higher things. Yeah. abstract things and and um the, how much there there must be a fair amount of even though language is arising in the left hemisphere there must be so much crosstalk influencing yeah. everything from there's all the crosstalk i mean there's crosstalk i mean synesthesia is not super well understood um there are some hypotheses out there but yeah the brain is a very interconnected organ um there's no question about it there's connections within and across multiple areas um but all that said it's not a homogeneous blob um there's definite structure to it there is we now understand that there is a number of um, what people call large-scale networks, meaning that there are um, sets of brain regions, sometimes even far apart from each other, um, that um, talk to each other a lot more 
within that network than to other areas outside of the network. So um, there's definitely a lot of structure there as opposed to just having, oh, everything talks to everything else. It's kind of true, but some things talk to each other a lot more than to other things. Um, and one of those networks is the one that we've been trying to understand, um, actually in relation to a couple other networks, but one of these networks supports um, um, high-level language interpretation, um, meaning whenever linguistic input comes in and you're trying to make sense of it, these um, brain areas are working really hard. They don't seem to work hard when you do anything else, uh, but they work really hard when you process either written linguistic stimuli uh, or spoken ones. Um, and we've been trying to understand how it is that these regions do that and how that network relates and interacts with the network that supports general fluid reasoning, which is a very important network. It's kind of linked to general um, intelligence and uh, another network that supports social cognition. So those are kind of the three um, high-level cognitive networks um, that all have precursors in other species but are well, well, um, much more developed in the human brain because the, the parts of the cortex that support these high-level functions expanded massively relative to our primate um, relatives. Hmm. Yeah. When, so you said, did you say the difference between written and spoken words at one point in there yeah. it was because it triggered so that's been i do a lot of me search on this podcast uh i i write quite a bit uh-huh i haven't been using the old notebook and the in the pad and pen like i yeah uh, you know I, I go in streaks but i haven't been using it much lately mm-hmm. been mostly writing on the computer Typing, yep and it seems like a very different hmm. part of the brain is at work it, it seems like like the quality of my creativity goes down a, a little bit on a computer. It's easier to organize and track. I don't lose anything. It's it's good for storing, but <laughs> it seems like actually writing by hand. That's very interesting. Just you've never uh, you've never heard yeah. someone say this um, before. No, I mean I don't think so. It, I mean it's certainly a different experience. I mean you would think that. Uh, there have to be at least some aspects of high-level planning that would be similar. I mean, there's certainly some difference. Of course, we plan utterances differently if we're going to say them out loud versus write them versus type them. We make some different choices in how we formulate things based on the eventual output modality that we're using. But um, it's interesting that you think that it kind of percolates up as high as to affect something like creativity. That's um, that's Uh, an interesting insight. There's a fair number of of (laughs) comedians that... Just way. don't huh. feel that they huh. can write good jokes on a computer. Well, it's very interesting. We should. I mean, we're actually. I've spent um, the last whatever ten, twelve years uh, mostly focusing on language comprehension. So this mm. is going from uh, linguistic utterances to thoughts. Right? How do we um, interpret messages? Uh, but we just just last year we started a whole big line of production uh, l- uh, line of work on language production. So how people uh, plan and output their thoughts, right? So this is converting thoughts to linguistic utterances and then sending them down to the motor system to either write them down or type them or speak them. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Can you define linguistic utterances for me? Just messages, like sets of words, right? Sentences. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, an utterance is kind of a, right. a common term that we use. But yeah, it's basically, it can be, an utterance can be as short as a word, single word, right? I can say... Um, 
a squirrel, right? I can like point your attention and it can be just a single word um, or um, hi is an utterance, but it can be as complicated as me describing, you know, the general theory of real, relativity or something like that. Like, um, yeah, and then so, there's a bunch of utterances you say. So yeah. the so the idea is, is you're, you're figuring out kind of the, um, the stage between you have an idea and then you you have to do the messy work of putting it into into words so that that's that's the process that you're looking into fascinating yeah Yeah. Yeah. so that's what we started well why haven't we been talking about this the whole time (laughs) well there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting things in language and um yeah so that's a relatively new thing i mean the the much 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 easier thing to understand is how do we go from the packaged information from words and sentences to thoughts i mean it's still not easy but Hmm. it's easier because we can control the input right we can basically give people different kinds of stimuli and see what happens trying to understand how people actually generate phrases and sentences is quite challenging um but Uh, uh, yeah how are 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 people in mris yeah okay yeah, M- MRI is what we've, uh, functional MRI is m- what we've mostly been using. Uh, for comprehension, we're also starting to use um, 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 something called the MAG, magnetoencephalography. So that is something that has um, a little bit more temporal detail. So if MRI basically measures a, a blood flow signal, and blood flow is just um, slow, it's not a fast response. So when some area in, the, in your brain is working hard, like right now, your language areas are working really hard, mm-hmm. and they get depleted of oxygen and glucose, which are things that cells eat. I was looking at and your chocolate right over there. <laughs> Please help yourself. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the, um, the whole system figures out that there's depletion of resources, and there's an increase in blood flow to those areas. Mm-hmm. And that's a signal we measure. And that takes a few seconds typically um but um in this other method we're trying to um get a little more precision about what happens kind of from um on the order of a few uh, milliseconds or tens of milliseconds hmm. um to try to characterize the dynamics a little more but hmm. but the fmri is a great tool for some questions um so i got started in this field um because i was very interested in whether language shares machinery with other things like math and music and mm. general social cognition like reasoning about other people's thoughts um, and when I was kind of coming to the field and um, thinking about these questions there was a, there were a lot of claims out there about overlap between language and other high-level cognitive functions but it turns out that um, that those are just wrong um, and in, in, in fact, in the adult brain, we have a set of brain regions that do language interpretation that do really nothing else. Mm. Um, and um, why exactly that is the case, I can speculate, but um, uh, it seems like um, uh, language is just um, really very different from other kinds of information that we um, deal with. And so it makes sense to have um, a system that would be specialized for processing this kind of input as opposed mm. to other things. Even though there's parallels, you can certainly draw parallels between language and music. In fact, in language and music, people love drawing parallels, but it seems like we use different circuits to do those things. Maybe the, par- maybe the computations are similar, but it's different little bits of brain that work when you do one versus the other. Um, and that difference, that separation of language from these high-level abilities um, tells you something um, 
really deep and important in that um, language is not the same as thought. <laughs> There's a lot of high-level cognitive stuff that can happen, a lot of reasoning that can happen that's just not dependent on language. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, quite different from one dogma that's kind of out there uh, in the field where um, the claim is that language kind of evolved as a vehicle for thought and it's effectively equivalent in some ways to thought. And it's really, really not. Um, and you can show it like we did, um, showing that during a lot of complex cognitive activity language areas are not engaged. Um, or you can also look at patients with severe linguistic problems, like those adult individuals who get a stroke and then result um, end up with uh, severe aphasia um, or language problems. And you can say, can these people still do math? Can they do um, music? Can they understand structure and music? Can they reason about other people's mental states? And it turns out that they can do all of that, mm. except for being able to map between linguistic messages and higher level thought representations. But everything else proceeds just fine. It's interesting to think about how that that region evolved um, yep. in, in the first place. I had, mm -hmm. you were recommended to me by a past guest, Dan Everett, yep. um, who does uh, a great. lot of great language yep. stuff. And yep. I actually had him on my stand-up science show mm -hmm. with Steven Pinker. Yep. And so that was fun because yeah. they have a couple different takes on, That's on right. things. That's I, right. I try to get scientists to fight on my stage. It almost you. never happens. Oh, really? It's always, huh. I always want there to be like a little yeah, bit of yeah, a beef, yeah. but it's that's interesting never i guess it all happens in reviews pretty cordial. When review each other's <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah when you don't have to see the person face to face exactly. standing yeah. next to them yeah. on stage you yeah, have to be yeah, a little yeah, more cordial yeah. um uh, but uh, uh. yeah how man it, 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 as soon as language must have evolved i bet that was the first thing that they talked about was just how great language was <laughs> like isn't this amazing <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. This, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What about what about like a a dog or a dolphin or a whale or or something that uh, it, do they have a similar language area? All species communicate. Um, uh, all species um, exchange information in some way or another. Um, the brain basis of animal communication is not, I mean, so you gave like a few examples, like a dog or a dolphin. I mean, um, the, be the best um, systems that have been studied in terms of um, communication are um, birds. So birdsong has been studied a lot as a model for um, uh, linguistic output, um, vocalizations, and then um, uh, macaques um, who... Um, of course, also communicate in quite sophisticated ways. They have been characterized behaviorally a lot as well as in terms of um, uh, neural responses. But uh, in the last like decade or so, people are also studying, uh, starting to study marine mammals um, and dogs. There's a whole big area now uh, known as dognition, so the study of dog cognition. Dogs are an interesting case because they co-evolved uh, with humans. <laughs> I mean, whoever yeah. came up with dognition, like they... <laughs> <laughs> they must. Uh, is there a statue for that? For <laughs> it's that pretty guy? good, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually bad. don't know who who was the first to use it, but I agree that's a pretty great uh, pun. Um, so um, yeah, so, so basically, animals communicate. So what seems to differ, and again, people have, as you said, different takes on this. So one standard wisdom that's been around for many years is that 
the thing that makes animal um, that makes human communication different is that we have the ability to put mm-hmm. words together. And so, um, uh, one is like a very strong version of this claim is we actually evolved a new region in our brains that other animals don't have that allows us to combine things together to do kind of composition or unification, as you know people call it different things. Um, and um, there is another thing that also makes human language different and it is that we have a vast amount of communicative signals that we use so we can store isn't even a five-year-old already knows tens of thousands of words and that's vastly vastly more than what a dog can learn or what a you know macaque can learn and what Mm -hmm. they use um and so um uh, i think in some ways people were a little too quick to attribute the key differences to the compositional machinery as opposed to um, expanding um, the cortices that can store vastly more mappings between symbolic representations and meanings, which is what effectively language is. Um, And um, I have a paper with um, um, a friend and colleague, Steve Piantadosi, where we actually argue that something like compositionality can emerge spontaneously once you have a large enough number of communicative signals. So maybe we didn't need to uh, emerge a region, evolve a region in our brain that specifically does this new thing, because in fact, composition is present across many domains, and um, animals engage in compositional thinking uh, in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Um, The degree is debated, but um, the existence of um, composition, I don't think, can be. Um, And so... Yeah, so we certainly have a more sophisticated communication system, but why and how it became so sophisticated, I think, remains still uh, to be figured out exactly. Related, mm-hmm. so you you have a take a bat that is blind, but it's using sonar to get around, so it's kind of seeing in yeah. its own way. And That's right. We conceptualize it in like uh, the movie daredevil with uh uh-huh. <laughs> who was in that was that ben affleck uh anyway where, where it's like he's here hearing things and he's basically like seeing that's right just like we do but just it's colorless or it looks like matrix right. or diff- whatever that's and that's right. kind of what we think about bats um doing and yeah. finding their way around what about when um you you have a mammal that is communicating through hormone signaling is is it a similar language processing is it like a the a same region of the brain when we don't know the short answer is we don't know exactly um there's got to be to the extent that there is um communication happening i would think that there would be parallels no matter what the signal is be it a chemical signal um, or um, an electric signal right there are some marine animals that communicate with electric signals Mm -hmm. um, like um, eels for example Uh, and or i like that people (laughs) that uh, i like that alien people are like man i wonder if we'll find like an alien sometime out there like well, just look in the ocean. That's there's right. Like, That's right. There's, there's a, yeah. a zillion of them. That's <laughs> very true. That's very through. true. And so, um, uh, and so, one interesting question to ask, and um, uh, that is a question that people have been asking a lot about human language lately, is whether we can show or l- test whether the properties of the communication signals that we end up using are shaped by the pressure to make information exchange efficient, right? Because if what 
made these communication systems evolve was the need to exchange information with one another, which in the case of other species seems like really straightforward. In the case of language, some people have questioned. Um, but if you can show that the properties of the system show traces of these uh, pressures um, on more efficient information transfer, then that's kind of a clue of how the system came to be, hmm. right? And so, for example, in language, people have now shown that many, many features of language um, uh, have been shaped to be, uh, to be useful for communicating information efficiently. Um, and so that suggests that it was these, this need to interact with one another in more sophisticated ways that drove the system to emerge, as opposed to, for example, the need to think more complex thoughts, which mm. is the main kind of alternative idea out there. Hmm. Ten, 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 ten. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I mean, that seems very efficient. Yeah. But so, so are, trying to see if mm. I kind of understand that right. Because going back to Going back to bird language, yeah, bird this, song, mm -hmm. this the bird song, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, rather. Uh, this this seems like something that has been driven um, towards complexity um, in in most bird species to advertise fitness and yeah. in various ways. Yeah. Maybe there's something like that going on um, with humans as well, which is weird if it's yeah. if it's birds because it's the males and bird. But it seems like females and humans are a bit more verbally that's fluent right, than, that's right. yeah, than men yeah, are yeah. so um, um uh, but, but but that seems like the opposite of um you know an efficiency based drive evolutionary that's drive. true um yeah that's right uh and it's i mean i think um they serve they do serve um different functions potentially i mean there's certainly some kind of information exchange in birdsong, right? You're communicating, like you said, something like fitness or whatever other desirable properties birds mm -hmm. see in mates. Um, in humans, it's um, it's actually transferring information about the world, mm -hmm. right? So um, um, human language is maybe one of the few communication systems that is used to communicate, to talk about properties uh, of objects and events around us, right? And so one, um, um, one potential story for um, how language came about is that the um, social complexity of human societies increased. There became more uh, people in the kind of close groups that lived together. And then it became more important to um, uh, exchange information about other people in the group. Like, for example, who should we trust? Who should we not trust? Who is going to steal our idea and go publish it <laughs> and call it Broca's area? Right? <laughs> so, right? Uh, but then another. <laughs> Broca's really, really getting it today. I know, I know. Well, <laughs> this is great. you know, he's, yeah, I don't feel so bad for him. He, got, uh, <laughs> he did okay. Uh, but um, uh, another story is that it's nothing to do with social complexity, it has to do with um, being able to pass down knowledge about efficiently doing something. So I've learned to use some new tools and I can no longer clearly show you just by, um, you know, copy me and you'll do the same thing. There's really some set of steps that you need to communicate about how to create these tools and use them. And that drove the emergence of this more sophisticated um, set of um, mm. utterances that we've 
can do that to, to so use the I, I can I can yeah. whistle with my hands. That's pretty cool. But I can't teach. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. Speaking of advertising, um, yeah. but the the point is, is like sometimes people ask me yeah. how I do it. And I'm like, oh, I actually don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. It's something that it just took me like months when I was yeah. when I was a little kid of practicing and tweaking, that's and right. I don't that's I don't right. really that's know right. what my hands it's are. It's hard doing. to explain. Well, I mean, there, that's true. There's certainly some skills that we do where we have very. Um, um, very little a bit, very little insight into the mechanism, and so it's very hard to convert into a linguistic description. Um, but you know, it seems like with a lot of um, skills that did get uh, passed down for generations and generations, um, we found ways to communicate about it. But hmm. it's evolutionary stories about language are really fun to think about. Um, but it's um, it's something that you can never get kind of the true truth, right? Because we can't go back and see yeah. how exactly a system like that emerged. We can only make quite indirect inferences from how the systems in our brains do or don't look similar to the systems that um, exist in, say, macaque brains to do similar kind of communicative acts. Um, what kind of tools are found at different ages of human evolution as um, is done by digging up uh, sites of um, ancient um, humans and Dan Everett probably talked to you a little bit about that, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, anyway, so so all of these inferences are really indirect, and um, um, I like puzzling over it, but I mostly uh, focus on just trying to understand how it is that these regions that we have, which are quite distributed, it's quite a lot of machinery that we have in the left hemisphere that does language. What is it exactly that they do that allow it, us to very quickly and efficiently, seemingly? Um, extract very complex thoughts from very simple messages, right? It's just a bunch of sounds that are hitting your eardrum, mm -hmm. or just a bunch of squiggles on a page. And from just a quick glance or a few seconds of speech, we can construct a very, very rich mental representation. That's, it's, that's what it's going to say on my tombstone, by the way, just a squiggle <laughs> on a page. Um, I, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, well, first off, you're... You're a scientist. You have to test things, and they yep. can be falsified. And you have uh, uh, reviewers and yeah. everything. I'm yeah. a comedian, so I get to do evolutionary just-so stories <laughs> all the time. Well, that's an and, advantage. Uh, yes. <laughs> most uh, uh, I yeah. face very few repercussions that's for great. for my wild <laughs> speculations. Um, so before I yeah. before I wrap up, mm. um, one I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Uh, did you have one in mind? Uh, yeah, um, I was actually thinking about this, um, and I think the one I'm going to do is um, Environmental Defense Club. So I normally would <laughs> um, would say American Cancer Society. I lost both of my parents to cancer, mm. um, but with the kind of urgency of climate change these days, it seems really important to support organizations and individuals like Greta Thunberg who try to make a difference and try to make people stop doing things the way that they've been doing, which mm -hmm. have been leading the planet into um, not a very good state, shall we say. It's troubling. Yeah. If only yeah. there were the words that we yeah. could use to yes. communicate that to everybody, yes. to get through to everyone. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that yeah. That is, uh, you know, speaking of mm. um, efficiency and utility, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it is um, uh, for as powerful of a tool as, as this language stuff, it's still... 
right. not necessarily capable of getting around there are many cognitive biases that that's we right. have and and um yeah, and that's right communicate because like you know, I know I know that I'm right about everything, but it's so hard to convince <laughs> other people know, that I'm right I about know. everything. Um, it is a challenge, yes. <laughs> uh, so what do you have coming up? Or I, I, I let me rephrase that. What I meant to say was what what are you what are you looking forward to uh, in in the future of some of your research? Um well there's um there's a lot. Um I do hope that we can make um, strides in figuring out language production, which is, like I said, is a harder thing to study than comprehension, um, and it's less well understood as a result, but um, I'm hoping we'll make some progress there. And um, there's another interesting enterprise um, that's kind of emerged also like in the last decade or so where um, suddenly um, some... Uh, artificial neural networks have gotten really good at solving some language tasks. This was not true when kind of connectionism was, um, are you familiar at all with the idea of connectionism? It's just simple nets mm. of kind of neuron-like units uh, a implemented bit. in a computer. I started I started reading this book, Connectome. Um, mm, a little bit different. Like little, um, is that okay? Yeah, that's probably more about the connections in the brain, oh, okay. I would say. But anyway, so, so there's a way to basically implement architectures that simulate neurons in the brain kind of in a simple way. And when that um, those models emerged in the 90s, they did abysmally on language tests, like trying to take a sentence and try to extract the structure of a sentence or predict the next word. They did really badly. But then there were these huge advances that happen in computation and machine learning where suddenly we have systems like you can talk to your computer, uh, you can talk to your phone, right, and ask Siri to do stuff and she'll understand you occasionally. Uh, she can't engage with you in a meaningful conversation, but she can do kind of at least very complicated pattern matching and find you information that you're looking for, for simple tasks. Um, and so given that we don't have good animal mod animal models for language because there's no species who have quite the sophisticated system that we have, we can try to now relate signals from these deep neural nets or artificial computer networks um, that are trained to do complex language tasks like machine translation from one language to the next um, and try to see whether there's um, any parts of these networks, any uh, properties uh, of how they process information that are potentially similar to how we do this in the brain. Mm. Again, this is reasoning by analogy. So just because a human brain solves a task and an artificial network solves a task, um, and end up with similar outputs doesn't mean that they solve it in the same way, mm -hmm. but at least we can take inspiration from these computationally precise models for how things could be implemented in human brain tissue. Because without animal models, it's just really, really hard to get to kind of um, a better level of description than just putting little blobs in the brain and kind of linking them to general cognitive capacities like language, right? That's just not good enough. I want to understand what the cells are actually doing so that you can understand the sentence or produce a sentence. Um, I can't wait for you to do that <laughs> so I can scoop it from you, <laughs> name it after myself. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> and, uh, well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank it's you. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Me. Sure. Evelina Federinko, mm -hmm. uh, everybody. Mm -hmm. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week.